Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 161. The last episode we had was a good friend of mine, um, Oak Simpson. Oak uh, and I were in the same year at uni together. Um, I've not really actually interviewed many folk from my my year. Uh, I don't know if he might be the first. I can't remember. Um, But yeah, it was good to chat. We hadn't seen each other in ages. He'd sort of, he was my age now then. He'd lived a life prior to to uni um, in the States and Australia. And then he's now sort of working as an agronomist. So it was really good to see him, really good to sort of hear the story and just, yeah, catch up, to be honest, which we're both pretty bad at doing. The next episode we'll have, um, which will uh, be uh, the yeah the next episode from now, number 162, um, is Cormac White. Cormac is another one of the Nuffield cohort, which I'm part of. Um, Cormac's a vet and his topic is on... Uh, small ruminants, I can't remember the exact uh, topic title, but we'll get into that next week. Um, but today's today's guest is another one of that Nuffield cohort that I am in. Uh, I was really, yeah, it's, good. it's been good to, to sort of catch up with folk on the podcast. I can't remember how many we've done so far. Um, but yeah, you'd been in this WhatsApp group chat, we'd went down to Exeter, we'd got to know each other. But for the most part, it was so busy and it was quite hustly bustly and there was hundreds of folk there. I really fully got chatting to folks, so it's been really fun to do this podcast and sort of get to hear everyone's stories and hear hear sort of what makes folk tick. Um, our guest today has got a really interesting Nuffield topic, which we will get into, um, but we'll we'll introduce her first, and that guest is Liz Haynes. Liz, would you like to say hello? Hello, hello everyone. Just before we get started with another episode of the R2 Cast, I would like to thank our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, formerly known as Aplan Rural. Howden are heavily involved in the social media scene in the ag space with over 100,000 followers on Instagram. They use this following to host social media takeovers with farmers throughout the country to showcase their stories, as well as posting to their rural community blog with further articles about these people in the sector. On top of this, they like to support initiatives that are championing the British agricultural industry, such as myself. So thank you to Howden Rural for that. Yeah, as as we said there, Liz, it's um it's a good topic, and I think, I think it would be strange to have a Nuffield topic that wasn't in fairness. Um, but I think yours probably along with mine and a couple others stand out away from what the the sort of the normal topics are. <clears throat> I'm quite looking forward to talking about that. Um, we'll get into that later though. Uh, could you give the viewers sort of a bit of background about yourself? Sure. Um, so, hello, I'm Liz. I'm a dairy farmer from Staffordshire. Um, we milk about 400 spring calving cows. Um, we're tenant farmers along with our two business partners. Um, I'm a new entrant to farming, not really from a farming background, although my granddad was a dairy farmer. But, um, you know, my family are completely kind of shocked and surprised at the career path I've kind of ended up taking. Um, it's been a surprise to me in a way, but um, 10 years in now and um it's going well. I think I've made the right choice. Um, I also um, sit on the sector council for dairy at AHDB. Been doing that since 2019. Um, and for a while, I was also a columnist for Farmers Weekly. So quite a lot in there. Quite a lot of time. It's certainly <laughs> different some... things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's I like right. to keep yeah. busy. Yeah. Um, got your fingers in quite a lot of pies. We could speak about all of them. First off, I want to ask why block calving? 
Uh, it's all I've ever known. I can't really profess to know about any other systems of dairy farming in depth. Obviously, through my work with AHDB, I've learned a lot in the last three years about other kind of systems of dairy farming. Um, but really, um, it's down to my husband. Um, he also is a new entrant to farming, um, changed his career from being um, a surveyor to a dairy farmer and um always knew from the outset that block carving was what he wanted to do. Um, he'd worked on a spring block carving farm kind of as a teenager and through his years at uni, seen um, how successful um, block carving was on that farm, how it had kind of transformed that business, making the shift from being a kind of mixed farm with all your own carving and um, arable and sheep and lots of other things to just a really focused spring block carving farm. Um, and so that was his kind of ambition to do that. And I guess also he saw the spring block carving and the kind of New Zealand system as a route for new entrance into dairy farming that was kind of more accessible. Um, and he went to New Zealand for 18 months and managed to farm out there and, you know, learn more about share farming and all those kind of things. And then brought that back to the UK. And so I guess that's kind of the journey that we've been on together really is moving from being employees to um, contract farming and now to having a tenancy, albeit in a joint venture with two other guys. Excellent. And it's, you know, it's quite, with this podcast, we'll by very nature interviewed at least 161 people with quite a lot with more than one person on. And wow. it's quite common for um, a couple to have one person who's new to farming, but it's not mm. common for two to both not be. Was yeah. you guys at, at similar ages think of farming for me? I mean, um, or, or was it, was there just random moments in both your individual life? Oh, I well, I suppose when I when I say that he's not from farming, he did grow up on a small holding and had um, some pedigree beef cows as a teenager, worked on this dairy farm from quite a young age, went to um, the REC as it was then. So he was kind of more agricultural than me, whereas I was the kind of child who was terrified of like cows and dogs and horses, to be honest, and um, would prefer to be indoors with a book than outdoors kind of getting muddy. Uh, so, yeah. It's fair to say it's probably been a bigger kind of shift for me than for him um yeah when when for you was that stage where it went from want to be in books to oh well quite like the thing. Uh, well I suppose so we've been together a long time um and since even when I was at university so even when I was kind of I studied English literature at university so all through that period um, we were together and I kind of as time went on I guess I knew that I had to kind of make a decision because you know if I wanted to like stay living in London or something then obviously that wasn't going to be compatible with his kind of farming ambitions and I suppose for me over time I did kind of see and through you know seeing what he did out in New Zealand um, that this could create a business for us and an opportunity for us and a lifestyle for us and so for me it wasn't just about milking cows and rearing calves and that sort of things it was about the business I think that as as much as the the actual practical farming the opportunity to kind of have our own business and be in control of our own destiny almost was what appealed to me actually and so um after uni I went to work in London while he was in New Zealand um so I was there for a couple of years working for a couple of different book publishing companies and I did really enjoy that but equally I'm the kind of person who's always kind of chomping at the bit like wanting to run before I can walk in some ways or move on to the next thing um and in some ways I was kind of frustrated because I was wanting to um 
progress maybe I'm not a very natural employee in a way I want to be the boss I guess um and so when um, my husband came back from New Zealand he then took a job on a farm in Dorset um, and for a while I carried on working in London and going to Dorset on the weekends and then the kind of plan started to come together um and we bought some calves that we um paid the business where he was working to rear them along with the calves that were kind of in the herd there um and that was our kind of first foray into kind of having a bit of an investment I suppose and then um a year later I decided to give up my job in London and move to Dorset and I went to work for the RNLI at that time mainly because it was kind of you know when you kind of google marketing jobs or whatever in Dorset um it's one of the kind of larger organizations I guess um and I loved working at the RNLI um really fascinating charity to work for got to drive a lifeboat <laughs> one time that was pretty cool um got to do the sea survival course that the lifeboat crew members do as well um because I had to write about that for the magazine so I really enjoyed all that um and in the evenings I was going to the agricultural college down there Kingston Moorwood and doing farm records and accounts with a view to kind of like skilling myself up I suppose for this plan of having our own our own um business um and then after that was probably a year or so that I was doing that for and then we saw this contract farming opportunity advertised in Shropshire and just decided to kind of take the plunge and apply to do that and that was when I sort of became a full-time farmer as opposed to someone who just kind of played at it on weekends and evenings no more access to lifeboats um yeah no <laughs> no sadly not but um yeah i would just like to quickly interrupt the show for a minute to give you some extra information about our primary sponsors howden rural the new name for a plan rural howden rural provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates this could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture be sure to check out howden rural today Liz, tell us about the tenancy process. I think, you know, I've had so many folk on here and after planning, I yeah. would say getting a tenancy is one of the biggest challenges uh, that folk come across. Uh, yeah. Yeah, tell us about that process. So I guess in a way we were lucky because we came to this opportunity through our business partners who were already kind of in the running to have this tenancy. And so it was them that kind of flagged it up to us and it was through them really that we got it so we kind of owe it to our business partners more than ourselves in some ways that we've um, got this opportunity here I have applied for tenancies in the past and not been successful but been through that process so yeah completely understand how kind of difficult and stressful that process can be and how you know it's a long process isn't it it's not like um you know applying for a job even or something often it, you know the time that we applied for a tenancy the process went on for months um and then we didn't get the tenancy so and you know felt like you'd invested a lot of kind of time and money and emotion into it only to not be successful and some people go through that you know numerous times before they get their tenancy so um yeah I guess we were in the right place at the right time for this particular opportunity really it was a was it was a short process is that a long process I think basically our business partners had already been through the long process before we kind of came on board. So we we kind of jumped the queue effectively. Um, and yeah, so for us, it actually wasn't, I mean, nothing's ever completely straightforward, is it? But no, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the same as that kind of process where you see it, you know, you see something advertised in the Farmers Weekly or something and 
submit your tender and all that. It wasn't quite like that. So. And and do you have a duration on that tenancy, or is it open ended? It's a fifteen year FBT, so it's not the longest FBT. And we've built a new milking parlor here, and we've put concrete sleeper tracks down. We've um, laid a water system, you know, fenced it. So we've made some pretty big investments as well. Um, so yeah, you know, there's quite a bit of skin in the game, shall we say? Um, but yeah. How far how far in are you so far? When was that? Uh, we took the tenancy in April 2020 so right as Covid was kind of hitting so that was an interesting year to kind of start yeah. a new business and try and build a milking parlour and things uh, so yeah we're kind of like just over three and a half years in so it's quite scary how time kind of ticks away and that clock on the 15 years is kind of counting down but I think that's a good thing though to have some pressure on you and to be mindful of that and um maybe a mistake that I've made in the past is thinking that everything has to be kind of forever. And that, you know, I know on the one hand, I know farming is a long-term game and you can't, you know, make an investment and expect to kind of see that turned around very quickly. But on the other hand, life is long. There's lots of opportunities, you know, you never know quite what's around the corner. And so boxing yourself in too much or, you know, being too close to other possibilities or thinking that you've, just got one path that you can go down and that's it and it's fixed and vinyl that's not necessarily a helpful mentality either um make, so you make a good point about life is long I've, i'm like you in that sense that i'm like oh my god if i haven't done everything by next thursday <laughs> like, yeah over. yeah yeah it's and it's i don't know if that's a trait of a certain type of person but yeah it's, I, I'm i like, think it is i definitely think it is a, for me it's definitely it is a bit of an adhd trait in me i think a bit that thing of trying to like run before you can walk and m the way my brain works is it's kind of like everything is either now or never <laughs> you know like yeah. structure having like a structured concept of time from now until the distant future is kind of hard for me um and that's something i've only realized in recent years quite that that that's how I kind of perceive things and that's been a bit of an interesting perspective shift I guess yeah I am um, I think the best way to explain that an objective example is that you know I film these podcasts obviously and for about I don't know six month period when I went to eight a month I was like well I have to film eight in three days and then the month's done that's just not how it goes <laughs> like, it needs to be compartmentalized but I really had to change that over time actually yeah um but yeah no it's interesting and, and moving on you mentioned AHDB um obviously a very important organization could you tell us about your role with them please? yeah so I am um, a sector council member it was originally called a board member when I first joined but now it's a sector council member and I suppose my role is to kind of sit on that board and represent um farmer levy payers um, represent the views of farmer levy payers to AHDB and um, to make sure that the decisions that are being made at AHDB um, you know are in the best interests of dairy farmers but also then to reflect back out to levy payers what's going on at AHDB and hopefully make sure they feel in the loop and supported and you know keep a finger on the pulse I guess so that the work that's being done is relevant and meets farmers needs. Do you have do you have contact with farmers in that sense or are you speaking? Yeah, to you know, I'm I'm out and about at um, farmer meetings, at discussion groups, at those kind of things, industry events representing AHDB, yeah. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. And when did you start that? Sorry. 2019, um, but prior to that, they ran a programme called Calf to Carving um, and they had monitor farms around the UK who um, tracked 
10 calves, I think it was, from birth to weaning. And we would record weights and things. And then we'd have these quarterly meetings on the farm. So we were a host farm for calf to calving in Shropshire. We'd have a quarterly meeting. We'd kind of track the progress of the calves. um, And then there'd be a speaker about a topic that was kind of relevant to that stage of development in the cow or heifer's life. And, you know, really enjoyed that process, um, enjoyed the kind of farmer to farmer learning um, thought the project was really good, learned some really good stuff about heifer rearing through it. And so when I saw the advert then that they were looking for board members, I thought, yeah, you know, like to get involved with this, really. And is there um, a term on that? Is there? Uh, it's three year terms and you're allowed two and then that's it. You're done. You can't do it again kind of thing. You're so I perfect. am sort of halfway through my second term, I suppose. Yeah brilliant i can just <laughs> just like picturing you getting to the end of that three year and guess six year term in some ways and being like well I've got nothing to do what's the next <laughs> i'm gonna take on yeah it's um, yeah it's true yeah yep yep and did you say you write for farmers weekly i did for about seven years write an right. opinion column for farmers weekly um yeah which that was a really enjoyable thing to do because i guess my previous background is more kind of like writing and books and things so for me that was quite a nice way to kind of keep keep a hand in with that kind of thing um so yeah keep the creative juices flowing <laughs> yeah was that like a monthly thing or was that i think it was every four or five weeks yeah right. which came yeah. around surprisingly quickly to be honest yeah <laughs> You're like, oh it's ages away and then something oh god, oh god yeah and like when i first started doing it i'd kind of meticulously plan them i'd like think about my topic in advance and then obviously as time goes on it kind of you run out of ideas <laughs> to be honest and it, and you know but you kind of get in the knack of doing it and suddenly that format of writing sort of four or 500 words becomes quite a well-oiled process and it's kind of easier to to do it. So, um, yeah. I think we were, we were talking about that a wee bit at Nuffield thing. I was sat next to to Rachel, who from memory is, is, has got a PhD and speaking to Annie and whatnot. And they, they we were all saying, and I'm guessing given what you've just said, 5,000 words for a Nuffield is quite short. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually, it's manageable, isn't it? Like when you break it down, it's not hideous, to be honest. I mean, I'm sure for some people, it totally depends. Like if you've done a PhD or something, then obviously it's probably going to be a walk in the park. Whereas I am guess, you know, I've known other Nuffield scholars who are completely not used to that kind of academic writing and 5,000 words feels like an absolute mountain to climb. So, um, but yeah, I'm that, that side of it is not the part of it that stresses me out at all, to be honest. The only thing is, again, back to the running before you can walk, I feel like I'm already trying to kind of write it in my head and I haven't even been on a single kind of trip yet. <laughs> so it's just like, well, slow down. <laughs> just like, you know, go through the process. There's plenty of time. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I think in fairness, I've probably looked at Nuffield and thought, well, yeah, we'll just dive in. We'll go for it. <laughs> we'll start writing it in my head and whatnot. And like you said, I mean, I think I think there's some folk that are looking at the 5,000 words and think it's massive. I think also just as difficult a task as folk that have written a hundred thousand words it's going to be hard to write only five Mm. yeah and that's another thing that I can kind of tend to is like verbal diarrhea um you know at school and stuff I'd definitely be the person who was like over the word limit and being told like keep it concise you know yeah yeah that's it yeah for sure just write 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 write. yeah what was it? I'm the person who can write like a whole page in one paragraph with like you know one full stop or something um yeah so everyone's gonna look forward to reading that what's it uh waffling yeah I was always called a waffler hey I was quite bad for that but um yeah we've mentioned your Nuffield a couple times now Liz and can you tell us sort of what it is what is your topic 
so the topic is neurodiversity in agriculture, which is out there. I don't think it's a topic that's really been addressed in a field before or very much in agriculture before in this country anyway. Um, so that's why I'm kind of keen to dive in and see what I can find out, really. I think it's I've mentioned a couple of times over the last four or five episodes when I've talked this episode's coming. It was supposed to be a bit earlier, but my fault couldn't film last week. Um so I've mentioned it a couple of times. <clears throat> and um I think neurodiversity is the best word to happen to any sector in so long. I mean, we 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 looked at and even up until two and three years ago, mental disability, which is such a demeaning term, first off. Mm. And, you know, to take that back to, like, you know, my parents' generation and stuff, some people that have a genuine talent, um, mm. in some cases, would be looked down upon as stupid or whatever. And that that's insane to me. And, you know, I get that years ago things were different and whatnot, but to look forward to, in my time as a student, and I'm only 26, that yeah. that was still the case. Mental disability, I mean, neurodiversity was not a word when I was at uni, not at all. Right. And I would say, well, it might have been a word, but, I was never aware of it in my... I think it, the word was coined in 1998, which, you know, that's within our lifetime, isn't it? Or sure. that's when it kind of entered, like, the academic kind of sphere. Um, and then, obviously, it takes time for things to kind of progress from that academic kind of realm into the real world. So I think that is definitely something that's only kind of happening now, really. So, yeah, absolutely. What you're saying is true, 100%. Yeah, and it's been great. I mean, we see students that... in um that have various neurodiversities and we're now able to work with that in a good way to, to bring mm. out so many skills that we're seeing but what what i think just before we get into your topic particular why what um i guess made you aware of nuffield and why did you go down the nuffield route as opposed to for example a phd <clears throat> uh so i've known various nuffield scholars kind of through my time in farming um the farmer that I mentioned that my husband worked for kind of through his teenage years he was an Uffield scholar so we'd seen you know what an amazing experience it was for him uh, and then I'm in a grazing discussion group that has a few Nuffield scholars in it um including David Tavener from our kind of cohort's dad um so I know him pretty well through my discussion group so I'd kind of been aware of it through that you know heard people talking about it saying what a great kind of um opportunity been for them how it had had such a big impact on their lives and I'd always kind of thought well I'd love to do that because I'm not someone who's traveled massively I've been on you know trips and holidays and stuff but I've never like had a gap year even or anything like that um so you know the opportunity to travel is amazing but also I am someone who does enjoy research and writing and those kind of things so it felt like it kind of would be a good fit for me really yeah yeah I think that's actually quite similar to myself, in fairness. It's quite, quite, you know, there was, there's a lot of people I'd met. I think I'd probably met a lot of people that are Northfield scholars but never realised. And then the more I sort of spoke about it, when I spoke about that I was going for it, the more I was aware of these people and thought, yeah, there's a common sort of progressiveness about you you people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, which is, is quite refreshing. Um, and why did you choose your topic? So... I have first been aware of neurodiversity because of my career before farming. So um, after uni, I went to work for a book publisher called Jessica Kingsley Publishers, who were um, pretty famous for their work, particularly on 
autism. I think they were kind of one of the first book publishers in the UK to publish books written by people with autism and for people with autism rather than just kind of medical texts. Um, and, you know, they published a lot of health and social care and um, psychology and all those kind of things but my job particularly focused on marketing the autism book list so that was where I first became aware of people like Temple Grandin um you know before I even knew really about her involvement in agriculture or livestock production um and you know really enjoyed that found it fascinating um you know learning all about that really and then Last year, I was diagnosed with ADHD myself, which was a bit of a revelation. And, you know, it's kind of strange almost that I hadn't realized, given that I had spent time moving in those kind of circles and reading those kind of books. But I think it just shows, like you say, how much the conversation has shifted, how much more awareness there is now. Um, and, you know, particularly with women, I think the kind of symptoms or traits or whatever you want to call it manifest themselves a bit differently in women. And, the conversation has definitely shifted there certainly since you know the things that I was reading and hearing in my time at JKP and you know all of that I think kind of came together and led to me having that kind of light bulb moment last year where I was like mm, maybe this actually fits me um and yeah that's kind of where it's led me and then with regard to Nuffield I suppose until that point I'd always wanted to do a Nuffield scholarship but never quite known what my topic would be and I'd kind of toyed with ideas about things like lean management because I'd learned a bit about that when I worked at the RNLI because they were big into lean management um or but you know I'm I'm not really a technical kind of person so a, a kind of technical Nuffield scholarship about something to do with livestock or soil or grass or something that wasn't going to be my bag and um, although you know the people management side and leadership and things like that really interests me I didn't feel like I had an idea kind of crystallized that really said yeah go for it and then you know suddenly this whole situation um with the ADHD and everything it's all kind of come together and felt like yeah this is actually a really interesting topic to take forward yeah, brilliant. And and first off, before I forget, Temple Grandin is one of the coolest people on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> I was lucky enough to, oh God, third year at uni, I think, we got a, a seminar from her. From her oh, uni. wow. Yeah, it was really cool. Really cool. Cool. Yeah, just such a, a pioneer of so many things. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I've, I would love to try and meet her as part of Nuffield. I've no idea whether that will be possible or not. But I mean, back in 2010, with my work she was um speaking at a conference in wales an autism conference and we were there selling books and things so i heard her speak at that conference and i remember sitting in like the breakfast room at this hotel like a few you know a few tables away from her and being like a little bit in awe and whatever and I, you know i didn't speak to her or anything like that but obviously i've read her books and things and just been really fascinated by her story really so um yeah that would be a really cool um thing if i do get the chance to meet her but we'll see whether that happens or not Give me a message after this, and I think I know the person at SRUC who's in contact with her. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll I'll see if I do, and I'll let you know, obviously, if not. Um, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, so did, did the diagnosis come as, one, a shock, and two, did it help? Did it change things? I'm always interested a bit about diagnoses and actually what that does yeah yeah definitely and this is something even people in my family have kind of said this to me like oh it's all very well you know giving yourself a label but what does what does that actually mean or what does it change and so 
yeah, that is an interesting point. And it wasn't probably a shock because I guess I'd got to the point where I'd put some pieces of the puzzle together and felt pretty strongly that this was, you know, a good fit for some of the things that I was experiencing. Um, I guess what was more of a shock was the fact that you hear so much in the media about how hard it is to get an NHS diagnosis and that it can take years and you can be on a waiting list. And basically I went to see my GP about something else, but I thought I'll just bring, you know, you can do the kind of online questionnaire or whatever you want because the diagnosis is literally based around like a questionnaire and questions about your life history there's not it's not like they kind of do a brain scan and go yeah you've got it and so I brought the questionnaire with me and I'd read a book um that was published by you know my old workplace a recent book and gone through it with my highlight and been like oh yep that's me that's me that's me <laughs> took that with me to the doctor and, and I kind of thought oh is he gonna like laugh at me or is he gonna go oh sorry we don't kind of deal with that here and he was just like oh yeah fair enough yeah I'll take a photocopy of that yep yep I'll send you off for a referral yeah you'll get an email and you know hopefully someone will be in touch might take a while but whatever and three months later I got my referral you know spoke to someone albeit on online um you know i think it was like a, a an nhs referral to a private provider but um yeah and it was just like straightforward simple three months later kind of done and i was kind of like oh wow like <laughs> didn't quite expect it to be like that but um there we go that's that's positive to hear in fairness because you hear a lot of slow stories uh, but then what i would say is that uh-huh. after that the kind of follow-up is not great because you know there's medication options you can try or you could have um, cognitive behavior therapy, but the NHS don't allow you to have both. You have to pick one, even though the kind of research shows that a combination of both is probably optimal. And then if you do the CBT, you just get like a set allocated amount of you know, sessions and it's just probably an online thing. And if you go down the medication route, you're just talking to someone on Zoom or whatever who doesn't really know you, doesn't, you know, doesn't, the, you know the NHS have allocated them like a short window of time to talk to you and so in the end I didn't really pursue any of that and I've not really had any kind of further support not that you know I, I don't want to sound like I'm like bleeding on oh no one's like helped me because I also realize that I am someone who is managing it's not you know don't get me wrong it's not like really a big problem in my life for me it was more about just that wanting to understand myself better um so I suppose back to your question, it's been positive from that point of view that it's helped me to access information and just understand better why I do certain things the way I do or why I think the way I do or why I behave the way I do. Um, so, you know, back to that thing of, you know, is it helpful to label people? Well, yes and no. If if having that label kind of opens a, a door to some information that is useful to you that you wouldn't have otherwise had, great. But on the other hand, if that label is you know gonna bring stigma or negative you know associations with it then obviously that's not so great but um yeah the future of of that shouldn't be the question of a stigma or negativity though you know that that's probably what you're doing that's probably what this is all about hopefully Uh, completely and I think back to that term neurodiversity that's what I love about it because we are all neurodiverse the the word literally means kind of the diversity of brains or ways of thinking and you know everyone is completely different and yet there are some people that ways of thinking you know fit particular patterns that fall happen to fall under a certain label whether that's dyslexia or autism or ADHD or dyspraxia dyscalculia bipolar you know there's there's a myriad of different things um but 
you know we're all in it together effectively and we can all learn stuff from each other and you know something that might be helpful to a person with autism in the workplace might equally be helpful to a neurotypical person and you know we can all share those kind of lessons I guess about the interesting different ways our brains work um that's the angle that I'm hoping to kind of look at it from anyway the way I see it is uh, maybe this is maybe this is wrong and maybe this goes against medicine or whatever is I don't think anyone's neurotypical I mean, what, mm. what, what is that? What is typical? Who's, and who's that, correct yeah. in inverted commas? You know? And, you know, that is such a big question that, you know, some of the books that I've been reading talk about how, you know, that concept of what is typical is kind of like a white heteronormative, you know, it's it's an establishment kind of thing that's been chosen by privileged people. And even the kind of diagnostic criteria for all these different things have been, you know, set up by certain people in certain societies and you know from positions of power and and so it's yeah it's not it's helpful to challenge that I guess um and again that's hopefully what looking at things from a neurodiversity perspective allows us to do is to kind of reframe it instead of saying these are you know medical conditions that need to be treated or fixed or these are um you know deficits actually they're just different ways of being and we all have different ways of being and none of them are necessarily better than others or worse than others sometimes they bring challenges or make things difficult in certain situations but equally they bring massive strengths in other areas and that's another part of it that I'm massively interested in looking at is like what are the different strengths and um what do they bring to agriculture and how you know how do they make um our particular kind of um workforce special and interesting and um yeah i think i think that's really interesting because do we look at neurotypicality that kind of the word you know what i mean whatever yeah yeah put that sort of term on it is it just a brain as a entity in itself or do you look at the cultural differences that that person's experienced how much does that come into how much does it mm. it's so much more than just like that brain that sort of brain with no idea of an environment sort of thing just looking at the brain how the synapses work it's not just that yeah. it's really interesting so yeah. yeah I'm very much looking forward to sort of what, what comes of it so let's speak about about Nuffield itself then Liz you sort of said mm. what, what's your plan and how, how do you we, I don't mean the study plan we spoke about that yeah, before, yeah. we're not quite at that stage but uh, yeah how that's you're looking for that to sort of pan out yeah, so, um, I mean, there's people doing some interesting things in the UK, but not that much. Um, like today, I've been on the phone to someone at the NFUS um, talking about their dyslexia project that was back in 2014. But I haven't really found anything else within agriculture in the UK like that. Um, you know, there are care farms in the UK. And I, you know, I want to look at this from all the different kind of angles of the spectrum. So whether that is, you know, at the one end, you've got the kind of Richard Branson's of the world, or, you know, the computer programming wizards, the Bill Gates, but at the other end, you've got people who have got more, you know, more severe extremes of these um, neurodivergences. And agriculture is, you know, doing things in that sphere as well. So I'd love to go and visit some care farms. And then, so I'll probably start off in the UK, um, Oxford Farming Conference in January. The theme is diversity and inclusion. So I'll definitely be going along to that and seeing who I can meet and what kind of ideas I can pick up. And then I'd like to go to Ireland, um, Trinity 
not Trinity College, uh, UCD, I was get them mixed up, UCD in Dublin, not Trinity College, UCD. Um, they have had a neurodiversity project there that was modeled on something that was done at Stanford University. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to go and find out about that, what they've done there. Um, Chagas, um, which is a bit like Ireland's equivalent of AHDB. Um, they had a year of diversity and inclusion. So I'd like to chat to them about what they've kind of done in the sphere. And then there's some other farmers that I kind of know in Ireland that are definitely um, outside the box thinkers, shall we say. So I'd like to go and chat to them and see what kind of contacts they've got and where that might lead me to. So definitely spend a bit of time in Ireland. Um And then the USA is probably where I'm hoping to spend the longest kind of stretch of my time, just because they were probably the pioneers in the kind of um, neurodiversity kind of sphere. Um, I'd like to try and go to um, Colorado State University, which is where Temple Grandin is a professor. They have a neurodiversity chapter there. I'd like to find out about that. And then I'd like to go and see some neurodiversity hiring programs like within the tech sector. There's lots of, um, you know, the big kind of Silicon Valley type companies have autism hiring programs. So I would like to go and kind of look at some of those and see how that works. But on that front, I'm kind of conscious that sometimes that makes me a bit uneasy. The kind of the way that those things are kind of like, my God, these people can hyper focus. Do you know what I mean? And um it can almost come across a bit exploitative maybe yes. I, I don't know like yeah. I, i'll be interested to see how that is kind of managed and um how they kind of find the balance between you know creating something that is an opportunity for neurodiverse people rather than an opportunity for the company to come kind of profit from their skills if you know what i mean um so that will be an interesting kind of dynamic to look at and explore um I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2 cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today, The Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. So yeah, and then um, Europe, there's an organisation called Specialistern that is a um, autism kind of hiring company, I suppose. They kind of train autistic people for the workplace and they also almost act like a recruitment agency almost, I guess, that place um, autistic people in all kinds of different businesses. But they do have some agricultural links um, with pig farms, particularly, I think. So look into that a bit. Um so yeah just see where these things kind of lead me and take me really but within agriculture itself i haven't found a great deal to be honest of work been done so far so it's going to be an interesting one i don't know if um the person you're talking to nfus was kirsty um but if not i'll put you in touch with kirsty kirsty's been on the podcast oh god she was one of the absolute first i think number 11 or 12 she's okay. 10 she's the 10th um yeah right back in that sort of starting bit where Kirsty was a year above me at uni and uh she struggled with reports but she was good at reports but she couldn't work out what was wrong and then she was diagnosed with dyslexia and okay. so was fine and uh she made some pretty notable campaigns farmer club based you know like the big place in london yeah. through the us i believe um and she sort of joined on as a young ambassador for that 
Uh, so yeah, I don't know if if that would be of use, but compassion to her, and also a few yeah, uh, absolutely would um, places trying to employ. Uh, I don't know what their exact policies are, but could sort of send you the place, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, also doesn't matter. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that your point about sort of like um, exploitative, because when you, when you consider this sort of thing, you think everything's been done for the betterment of people in general, but. Mm. Is there is there a stage where, and I don't want to say the word used, but the term can be used to better a company's sort of. Oh, I think there's definitely companies like, you know, in the kind of shiny corporate sphere that it's you know inclusion and diversity is like something you pay lip service to maybe, and it's about you know, ticking a box and making yourself look like you're on trend, and you know, that's also not at all the angle yeah. that I wanted to come at this from um so yeah when when you mentioned about uh, Oxford Farming Conference you mentioned sort of inclusivity and diversity do you th- uh, this is a complete question that I don't know the answer to and I don't think anyone apart from OFC will do you think when they say that they mean I just think when I hear diversity and inclusion to be fair, I might have actually added the word inclusion. I think it is something like the power of diversity. And I think it is supposed to be looking at diversity in all of its different kind of facets. Um, so, um, you know, a really broad definition of diversity rather than the kind of inclusion and diversity, HR speak kind of yeah. inclusion and diversity. So, so yeah, that should be good. Yeah, I, th- I think that was, that was probably the question because, I mean, I, I think a lot of people hear that and think from an ethnic, cultural and, and maybe sort of LGBTQ perspective yeah i'd never even considered neurodiversity perspective so yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone that's probably quite involved in this sort of thing never considered it so it's, it's useful yeah to, um, you know and i mean like farming has ag respect is the kind of charity or organization that's to do with like um you know sexual and gender diversity within farming and we've got mental health charities now that have kind of really shifted the conversation on that but yeah you're right neurodiversity just is one that hasn't really had its moment yet so it's certainly a word that, like we spoke about this earlier, but probably didn't mention this part that I'm very much aware of it now and, and interested in trying to look into it so I can help people that I don't like saying have neurodiversity, help neurodiverse people that, especially in my job, students. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people still aren't aware of it. So it's good that, that we're getting the word out there and, and, and people like you are, are doing that. Um, so that was UK, Ireland. US and where was the place in Europe? Was that Switzerland? It sounded Swiss, but uh it's Danish is the kind yeah. of headquarters of the company, but I think they've grown to kind of all over Europe and globally now. So yeah. Looking forward to it. Looking forward. Oh actually, do you know I've read a couple of Nuffield uh, reports, I read Michael Blanche's and uh oh that's terrible, Jenna Ross's, I believe. Um mm. but I, th- I I actually think over the course of a bit of time I plan on reading all of ours not as you can yeah. read everyone from now on but we're quite interesting just to have had the chat with you all and sort of seeing where it goes um yeah definitely yeah uh yeah all sounds good all sounds good how long do you plan going to states for hopefully at least three or four weeks but obviously for me with the farm and my children are fairly young so it's just being a bit mindful of all those different things but i'm hoping summer next year um yeah yeah, grab a window hard. and um make you know that's the great thing about the spring block carving is things are a bit hectic in march when we have to go to the csc in brazil yeah. <laughs> um but you know after that 
you know, once mating is done in kind of May, June time, summertime is, you know, not as as farms go, summertime is, you know, a relatively kind of chill time of year. So that'll be a good time to get the travelling in. So tell us yeah. tell us about that quickly, Liz. Let's let's try and forget the stress of the fact calving's going on at home. Are you excited for Brazil? massively excited because it's just somewhere that I'd never get the chance to go under any other kind of circumstances so yeah just like what an amazing opportunity and I think we've just been lucky haven't we because obviously the CSC kind of moves around and so sometimes it's in Europe or whatever and we've just lucked out that it's in Brazil for us so yeah although the itinerary is pretty scary it's like planned down to the minute I'm starting to learn how Nuffield kind of how (laughs) Nuffield rolls um and you know there's everything from like a gala dinner to the opportunity to go horse riding to you know like farm tours so packing is going to be interesting actually you make a good point I wouldn't have even considered that yeah good point um I think as you're starting to learn especially when I'm doing something like that like I post about everything I just want to say about a culture and explain what I'm experiencing a culture so I think, mm. my, I think people are going to unfollow me I think it's going to be that, no. that much. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love it. you're absolutely right though about um the chance of getting to go there I mean I think I think up the, the previous CSCs Brazil or Zimbabwe would be my absolute favorite out there. I mean Brazil mm. fascinated me as a football fan for so long as well but yeah. I did, I did feel quite bad speaking to an off-field scholar over, over the week, eh, Alistair, and I genuinely felt quite bad when speaking about CSCs, like where you go in Brazil, and I was like, oh, I can't wait, all this sort of stuff. I was like, where did you guys go? Completely forgetting he was the no, the, the COVID group. Oh, uh, yeah. Went, went to Norfolk, and I'm like, oh. I feel bad. Sort of Beautiful bad. Norfolk. I've never been to Norfolk, actually, so that would still be a um nice, you know, new experience for me, but yeah not gonna lie it wouldn't be quite brazil would it to say no Any offense to the lovely people of norfolk but <laughs> yeah no definitely here liz it's always good to, to chat it's good fun Um, time sort of flies by three quarters of an hour is already flown by speaking about speaking about the plans for Nuffield. um and as i said very much looking forward to it and again probably won't see each other before march but uh, no. i don't know how this parliament thing i don't know what politics is i don't know how it works so i don't know how london will go but very much looking forward to brazil um and, and seeing you all again but before i let anyone go there's two questions i ask absolutely everyone um and i hate the first one myself but i'm gonna say it anyway um the first one is where do you see yourself in five years and i think you're probably quite good for answering the second question which is if you'd any advice for people new to farming what would they be so in five years time well I hope that we will have continued to kind of develop and evolve our business on the dairy farm um I guess my husband and I have an ambition to kind of have something in the pipeline for ourselves to give us a bit more kind of security for the future because of what we talked about the kind of short um length of the tenancy and you know our business partners are fantastic but equally you know at some point we need to kind of have something bit more secure just for us so in five years time I'd like to be a bit further along the kind of pathway to having achieved that I guess and then advice for anyone coming in just meet as many people as you can learn from good people I think that's something my husband was brilliant at doing is you know he found out who were kind of good people doing good things in the industry. And to be fair, that, you know, that guy in Cornwall that he worked for, the Nuffield Scholar, was a great person to kind of open those doors to him because as a Nuffield Scholar, he was the kind of person he was in contact with, kind of progressive, interesting people. Um, And so, you know, we did used to spend our weekends and stuff visiting other people around the country and 
learning from them basically um but then there comes a point that you just have to put in the graft and like save some money and you know make <laughs> it happen basically yeah uh, but yeah no very good very good it's quite exciting i always quite like when folk answer the the sort of five years question essentially doing the same thing yeah trying to do it better or trying to go further but you know still basically means they're enjoying what they're doing and also hopefully hmm. by then will be three years post presentation yeah, uh, crazy yeah. it's quite nice i'll be and um, jock and i will be well given we get on on time we'll be presenting in our home nation which will be quite nice oh yeah. that's awesome yeah yeah oh. and, I've, and i've and like you're saying about Norfolk, I've never Norfolk. I've never been to Aberdeen, so. Uh, oh wow! Well. Yeah. then, yeah. Never been north of Dundee. Well, I've been to Shetland. I've never been north of mainland Dundee. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So no. Well, I have got a confession. I've only ever been to Edinburgh and Glasgow. Those are the only two places in Scotland that I've ever been. So, um, yeah, it will be new for me too. Well, you'll have to experience the Isle of Arran sometime. That's where I'm from. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. It's quite pretty. And if you do like a drink, Arran Gold, which is basically the Arran version of Bailey's, is Ooh, to die for. Yeah. That does sound really good. I am a big Bailey's fan. Yeah. yeah. I haven't drank since June at all, but I think at Christmas I will enjoy one with my mum, a nice Arran yeah. Gold. <laughs> that sounds like a good yeah. plan. Yeah. <laughs> no, good stuff, Les. Listen, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, pleasure, pleasure to sort of have a chat with another one of the group. Um, and those of you listening, hope you've enjoyed Liz's story. Um, I'm sure quite a quite a topical one for some people, maybe a completely new concept for some people, and that's good that we're we're, we're speaking about these things and actually more people are becoming more and more aware, um, which is what what Liz will be trying to do and look forward to her report entirely. So, uh, yeah, hope you've enjoyed that other episode. The next one coming up, as I've said, is with Cormac White. Cormac's another one of the, the Nuffield cohort. I'm not going to go into in depth because I can't remember exactly. I don't want to butcher it. Uh, come back to the next episode of the R2Cast to find out. Thank you for listening to episode number 161 and we'll see you for the next one. See you then. I hope you've enjoyed another excellent episode of the R2Cast as much as I have. And I would just like to quickly thank our primary sponsors of the show today, Howden Rural, the new name for A-Plan Rural. If you follow Howden Rural on social media, you'll see the plethora of work that they do to support this sector, and it's been a pleasure to work alongside them so far, and long may it continue. For more information about them, be sure to check out howdeninsurance.co.uk forward slash rural, and I'll see you for the next episode.